My wife and I have now been back in Lexington for two and a half years. My wife grew up here. This is my first stint living here, but uh, we still love it when people come to Lexington, especially for the first time, uh, newcomers. In fact, we saw some friends of mine from college this past fall, and uh, they always comment, uh, man, I've never been to Lexington before, but I, Lexington's such a great city. It's so beautiful, and uh, I still feel that way, but it can be easy for some of the beauty uh, to become familiar. Uh, I regularly drive down the Bluegrass Parkway, and I almost always go you know, Versailles Road uh, out that way, and uh, I probably, because we have family in Nashville, and I preach a fair amount in Elizabethtown and Louisville uh, some weekend. So I was thinking I, I've probably driven that drive uh, two dozen times uh, over the past year. And uh, a few days ago, we were driving home uh, from visiting family over Christmas, and the sun was setting uh, kind of right in between uh, Keeneland and New Circle on Versailles Road. There's this farm uh, out to the north, and it was dusk, and it just looked amazing. And uh, I was trying to tell my, the passengers in my car, my family, um, hey, wow, that's awesome. Um, I've probably driven by that place two dozen times in the past year. I don't think I've ever even noticed that farm. I'm always captivated by, you know, Keeneland or the airport. Uh, but it was stunning. And it took a beautiful sunset for me to actually notice it, much less appreciate it. And in, in this passage that we just read, Jesus is telling a parable. And like all of his other parables, Jesus is telling this story with familiar elements to a people that would have been familiar with that type of atmosphere to actually make something that has become mundane and rote to his audience to become beautiful again. Jesus in this passage is restoring beauty and wonder uh, to what has become something that his audience have taken for granted. Um, and, and he does this by telling a parable about a dinner while he's at a dinner. And uh, it's interesting, uh, you know, we're in the season of feasting. A lot of us have eaten more than we thought we would over the break. And we've had time uh, with family and friends and some of those Dinners and times have probably been great. Some of them may have been awkward. Uh, of course, there's no shortage of Christmas movies to highlight both the joys and the tension that can come along with the holidays. Uh, Christmas vacation being one of my favorite uh, dinner scenes uh, to highlight how hard things can be. But I don't think any of those meals hold a candle to the tension uh, that would have taken place at the dinner Jesus is at when he tells this parable. Uh, we're told earlier in the chapter that he's He's eating with Pharisees. They've invited him. I'm not sure how that went down because pretty much on every page of the New Testament, uh, Jesus is in some sort of confrontation with the Pharisees. They don't like him. Uh, they don't like what he has to say about himself, God, or them. Um, they've already tried to kind of trap him uh, with a question about the Sabbath earlier on in the chapter. Uh, and then Jesus begins to kind of pick up on some of the stuff they're doing. Uh, he's noticing where they're sitting and how they're choosing to sit. And he reminds them of, of kind of simple etiquette that they've forgotten. Like they love the places of honor. You know, you like showing up to a dinner and you like getting the good seat, whatever that might be. Some of you might like being in the center. Some of you like, you know, maybe prefer 
easy access to an exit. Uh, he's, he's picking up on where they're choosing. He's saying, you've forgotten. You, know, you, you don't sit in the highest place. You know, then the host could come and say, hey, so-and-so's here. They're more important than you. Uh, they need to sit here, and then you'd be full of shame. Uh, and then he turns his attention to the host, and he says, hey, I see you've invited all these people. Uh, that you love, and they'll probably repay you, and they'll probably invite you back to their parties. Um, but that's not what you should do. So, so it's already kind of a tense dinner. Jesus is kind of noticing the guests. He has a word for them. They don't really like him. Uh, and then he says something to the host. Hey, you've invited all these people. Uh, that's not who you should invite. You should invite people who can't repay you. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And Jesus tells this parable to a group of people for whom the kingdom of God, their relationship with God had become something that they kind of thought they had figured out. And Jesus tells them this to remind them they haven't. They don't have it figured out. In fact, they've gotten it all wrong. And as he tells this parable, uh, there's a lot going on in it. But, but I want us to see two things this morning. One is the longing of the host. Uh, the longing that the Lord of hosts has to fill his table. Uh, and secondly, the response to that longing and that invitation. Uh, first, the longing of the host. Uh, this parable picks up on a theme that you see throughout scripture. And that is one of the ways Jesus describes what life is like in the kingdom. And one of the ways the prophets describe what life will be like at the end of days when Jesus returns. Uh, what our relationship with God is like currently is that of a feast. We read from Isaiah earlier, 25 verse 6. God will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. When God delivers the Israelites out from slavery in Egypt, uh, he's delivering them to what? He's delivering them to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a feast. Before they get there, they're in the wilderness. They have no food. And what does God do? He provides for them what to our eyes might have seemed like a meager meal, but for them it was a feast. Manna. In the midst of wilderness and no food, God provides for his people. Jesus' first miracle on this earth was showing up at a wedding feast and saving the shame of the host by producing hundreds of gallons of amazing wine. The end of history for God and his children is described as a wedding feast. Where God will come back for his bride. And, and, and here's the deal. The people at this dinner knew that. They were familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah about this feast of well-aged wine and good meat and food. And that's why in verse 15, uh, the man says, blessed is everyone who will eat at the kingdom of God. He's familiar with this, but, but what had happened in between Isaiah writing that prophecy and Jesus coming back was that various sects of Judaism and various teachers had arisen uh, with their own kind of interpretation and spin on that. There were two in particular. Enoch, 
claimed that this, this feast would take place, but he believed it would only be those who could trace their lineage to Abraham. No Gentiles get in. The Essenes believed, kind of on a similar note, there would be a feast and it was going to take place, but there would be no Gentiles and no one that was unclean. That included no one who was blind, no one who was paralyzed, no one who was deaf or dumb. And so that's why this this man in verse 15 says, yeah, Lord, I know about that feast. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. In in other words, he's, he's saying, Man, I can't wait for that. We've got this thing in the bag. That party is going to be awesome. And then Jesus immediately tells him this parable uh, to show him and his audience that, that maybe he doesn't fully understand. Maybe he didn't fully read Isaiah. If he kept reading in Isaiah, we read from chapter 25 earlier, verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. God will swallow up On this mountain, the covering that is over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will take away from all the earth. He will cast away the covering and the veil that is over all nations. Not just one nation, not just one select group of people, not just one people with one group of lineage. Jesus is coming For every tribe, tongue, and nation. These people had fallen into the same trap we can easily fall into. For for us, our temptation is not as much to trust in our Ancestry.com report. Like, oh wow, look how, although that is a temptation for some, if you have an awesome one, uh, that can be a great, you know, fact about your family. It can be something you can take pride in and it can be something you can take too much pride in. But it is easy Ever since the fall, for us to value anything about our exterior more than God does. God's saying we shouldn't care about that stuff, don't care about our ancestral lineage. But he is saying we have have a tendency to care too much about the exterior. Similar to when he chooses David. In 1 Samuel, he's looking at all the brothers. What does he say? Man looks on outward appearance. God looks... At the heart. God is interested in our heart, but our tendency in ourselves is to place too high a value on things that people can notice, on things that we can brag about. And when we do that, inevitably, we will begin to look down upon and exclude people that don't fit the mold of things that we think are impressive or things that we think grant us access to the right people and the right places. These people had fallen us in to that trap. And, and that's why I want us to see the longing of God to fill his table. It's vital that we understand the context into which Jesus is speaking because it's really similar to our own struggle. But notice the longing of this host to fill his table. Look at verse 21. He's longing for people to come. And he's sad when they don't. So he says, go. Okay, fine. They didn't show up. You go. Go to the lanes, the alleys. Hey, there's still room. Go to the hedges. As we just saying, go tell it on the mountain. Go everywhere. God is determined to have his table filled with his people. And he invites us to join him 
in that mission. In his wisdom and in his determination, he has chosen to include us in that mission. That that we would be after the same people he is after. There was a pastor a number of years ago who wrote a book about a trip he took to Hawaii to speak at a conference. Uh, Not a bad place to speak at a conference. Um, But he was uh, up late one night, I guess, time change, jet lag was getting to him, and he was in his hotel starving, and he, he walked out uh, in the streets of Honolulu, and evidently there's a less than glamorous part of Honolulu, I've never been, but he ended up at a diner there at 1.30 a.m., knowing that he was probably about to regret the meal he was about to eat, everything was kind of greasy, um, counter food, spoons, and he's eating his meal, and uh, all of a sudden a group of women come in. They're loud. Uh, it's clear that they're inebriated. And uh, he quickly realizes this is a group of prostitutes. And he can't help but overhear their conversation. Uh, and one of them was saying, hey, what time is it? Someone said, oh, it's 1.30. And she said, oh, in a day? That means in one day, it's, it's my birthday. And one of the other women said, what do you want me to do, bake you a cake? And she's like, well, no, I just... Just realized it's my birthday tomorrow. I was just telling you. And uh, they got their drinks, uh, their food, and they left. And the pastor was still there. And he asked the guy behind the counter. He said, hey, do they come every night? And he said, every night. Same time? They come at the same time. What about that one woman who said it's her birthday tomorrow? Does she come? She comes every night. Hey, what do you think if, if we threw her? Did you, did you hear her say it's her birthday tomorrow? What, what, what if we threw her a birthday party? The guy was like... Uh, yeah, that's actually, that's actually an awesome idea. He said, uh, and the pastor said, well, I'll, I'll bring like the balloons and stuff. And the guy behind the counter said, my wife works in the back. She, she, she'll make a cake. Um, so the next day he shows up, same time. They've got balloons, banners. Uh, women walk in and they break out singing happy birthday to this woman at 1.30 a.m. in a diner. And she starts crying. Uh, they eat their cake. And they leave eventually. And uh, the guy behind the, past, the, the counter said, hey, remind me, what do you do again? Why are, why are you here? And he's like, oh, I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he said, what kind of church do you pastor? And he said, the kind of church that throws parties for prostitutes at 1.30 a.m. And he's like, that, that type of church doesn't exist. He's like, if that type of church existed, that, that's where I'd go. And, and sadly, for, for many people, that is their view of what the church has become. You know, that, that we avoid certain people like that that would make most of us feel uncomfortable. But, but that is certainly not who Jesus avoided. Jesus did not avoid those people. He went to those people. And he's saying here that, that that's who I'm inviting to this table. That's what the banquet is going to look like. It's going to be filled with people who are wondering what they're doing at the banquet. And then he gives a parable to describe what this this kind of looks like. And he talks about this man who throws a party and he sends his servant out to invite people. And, And the way it would have worked in the ancient Near East is that you would have gone into your town and sent out an invitation. Uh, and if and if whoever said yes was obligated to come. A, because you know, that's a nice thing to do, but, but also because 
they based what they were, you know, going to, what, what crops they were going to prepare, what animals they were going to slaughter based on the number of people that would come. And so you saying yes to that initial invitation was as good as you showing up to the house. Well, evidently a lot of people said yes. And so the second wave comes out where he says, hey, the feast is ready. Come and eat. And all of a sudden he starts to hear horrible excuses. He, the, the, the comparisons, someone, someone told me a great comparison. This would be like you inviting me over to your New Year's Eve party and um, I get there maybe a little bit early, maybe right on time and I'm hanging out in the foyer might take a little chips and dip. We'll see. Uh, and then I kind of, after a few minutes, I'm like, you know what? I got to run. Uh, I bought land on eBay. And I think it's in like Paintsville or Paducah. I can't remember which one. But I just need to go make sure it exists. You know, uh, don't want to get robbed out of some money. Um, or, you know, hey, I bought this car on uh, Facebook Marketplace. And I just need to go make sure, you know, I didn't get scammed. Um, that would be a pretty horrible excuse. Uh, this is, that's the type of excuse these people are giving. No one at this time would ever have bought land without going to see that it existed. We, we have, you know, ways we can get our money back, you, you know, if you buy on a reputable site. Uh, back then, you would never have given the full amount of money for a parcel of land without walking the parameters. You would never buy yoke of oxen without looking at them first. Uh, you would know a few days in advance if you were getting married and not be able to come. These are dreadful excuses to not show up to a party. These people knew what was going on. And in, in giving these lame excuses, they humiliate the host. We're told no one that was invited showed up. No one came. That, that's humiliating. In the midst of their excuses, they humiliate the host. And Jesus is telling them, this is how you have treated the Lord of hosts. This is the way you have treated me and therefore treated my father who sent me. They've humiliated their father to the one who's preparing the greatest wedding feast in history. They have said no thank you. To the king of kings and lord of lords, they have said, I'm good. I've got this. To the one who longs to feast with his children, they said, I'd rather do what I want to do when I want to do it. They, like the people in this parable, have humiliated the host. And as you read in verse 21, the host is understandably, visibly angry. And yet, in that same verse, it says he's angry, and then immediately he turns that anger into an invitation to fill the table. Immediately, the energy he's using to be angry is turned into a gracious invitation to the outsider. Go out then to the lanes and the alleys. Sir, we did. There's still more room. Go out to the hedges. Go out to the highways. You know what he's telling them in saying, go out to the hedges and the highways? That's going out beyond their little kingdom. 
That's going beyond their borders. That's going beyond the Jewish people. Go out and get those people. My table will be filled. And isn't the cross an identical picture to what is going on in this passage? You see on the cross our Savior humiliated. He's humiliated by our sin. And the cross is a picture of God's wrath on our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience against God. And it is an invitation to anyone who is willing to admit that they have sinned, that their sin is forgiven, that it has been nailed to the cross. It is simultaneously God's wrath on the injustice and rebellion and disobedience of this world and in our hearts. And at the same time, it is the invitation for anyone to come and cast their cares and their sin and their guilt upon Jesus. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In Jesus' humiliation, God's wrath upon our sin becomes the invitation whereby we get a seat at his table. God longs to eat with his children. If you fast forward a couple chapters in Luke, Jesus is at the table with his disciples hours before one of them will betray him. A couple hours before many will deny him. And you know what he says to them? He says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. I've earnestly desired to eat it with you. He longs to eat with his children. It, it is, it's confounding grace. We're going to sing a hymn in a few moments called Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It is a wondrous mystery. And Jesus is reminding us. He, he's unveiling. He's taking. He's tearing apart our familiarity. And mundaneness of what we've related to with Christianity. And he's reminding us that it is beautiful. He's reminding us of the wonderful mystery of the gospel. Isaac Watts sums it up well in his hymn, How Sweet and Awful, is not awful as in terrible like we use it, but how sweet and awful, full of awe is the place. How sweet and awful is the place with Christ within her doors, while everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores, while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast. So, so, so he's talking about people gathering around this feast. But while we're all joining to admire the feast, each of us cry with thankful tongues, Lord, why was I a guest? Isaac Watts is, is summarizing what Jesus is getting at in this parable. Anyone that would have shown up at the feast in this parable is showing up wondering, am I supposed to be here? Uh, do I know I don't know anyone here, actually. Um, did I do anything to get this invitation? No, I've never invited this person to a party. I don't, I don't know this person. We will show up the same way. If you trust in Jesus, 
There ought to be a base note in our lives of gratitude and awe and thanksgiving. Lord, why am I a guest? Our lives ought to be characterized by thanksgiving. If if you trust in Jesus, it's not because you are impressive or because he saw something impressive in you. If you trust in Jesus, it is because he went out to the hedges and the highways and brought you in. That is the only reason you find Jesus compelling is because he opened your eyes and he softened your heart and he raised you from the dead that we might be brought in. Then, when we understand that, only when we understand that that is the nature of our relationship with God, that is purely of his grace, Then and only then will we be able to follow the call of this passage. The call of this passage is twofold. One, it is to come. Come. Come to Jesus. With all of your failure, with all of your failure to uphold this call, come to him. With your phoniness and your hypocrisy, come. Laid bare of your pretense and your guilt And come and admit to him that you need him. With nothing in your hands that you bring except clinging to the cross where his blood was spilt for you. But the other call of this passage is not just to come to him but to call others to come to him. And we can only call others in a way that is beautiful and compelling when we see that they are no different from us. That we have no greater right to the table than they do. How do you reach out to people who are on the bottom rungs of life in whatever category you can imagine? How do you not only reach out to them but actually make the gospel beautiful to them and compelling? It is when you understand whether you are currently in the bottom rungs of life or you know that you were and are apart from Christ, only then can you reach out and love these people. Only then will we invite people that cannot give us anything in return. When we realize that God invited us not because we could give him something in return. This call is hard. Will it disrupt your life? Yes. Will it disrupt your calendar? It will. Will it disrupt the way you relate to other people, to your budget? It will. Following this passage, Jesus tells his disciples, you must take up your cross and follow me. It is not hard. Sorry, it is hard. It is not easy. And yet Jesus is asking them to do this in the context of a feast. You already have a seat at the table. It is hard because of our sinful nature. It is not hard because it's not beautiful. It is a beautiful thing that we get to participate in. Yes, it will be, it'll go against our grain, but we are doing so to bring others to a feast with other beggars and other blind, poor, lame, sinful people who have one thing in common. They're all looking at each other wondering, 
hey, how did you get invited? Wow, how did I get invited here? Um, wow, it's a pretty cool party. None of us really know what's going on or why we're here, but we're here. That's what Jesus is after, and he invites you to participate in that. The world needs this type of feast. The church needs this type of feast. And look, if you're on the fence this morning about Christianity or you've been wounded by the church or wounded by the hypocrisy or insults of believers, I'm sorry. I am. I, I meet with people every semester who, who are in that same boat. And, 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 and the invitation of this passage here is not to put your faith and those who claim to be followers of Jesus, but to come and follow the one who enters into the misery and death of this world and throws a feast. There are a lot of worldviews and platforms that tell us what the world needs is more kindness, more humility. Only does the gospel not only proclaim that, but actually empower us to do that. Let me pray. Father... Lord, we need you. Lord, we confess, I confess uh, this morning that you and your character and your gospel can become so familiar, so conceptualized, something that we feel we've mastered and in doing that, We get puffed up with pride and look down on others. God, forgive us. Heal us. And Lord, humble us. Lord, that we may be not about our glory and our standing and who we know and who we're known by, but that our boast would be that we are known and loved by you in spite of our sin and because of Jesus. Lord, give us new delight in that good news. We pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.